welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Jeffrey Ian Ross, Professor in the School of Criminal Justice and College of Public Affairs and Research Fellow at the Center for International and Comparative Law and Schaefer Center for Public Policy at the University of Baltimore. We will discuss his work on street culture and convict criminology. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Great to be here. I'm so glad you reached out on Twitter because this work is really fascinating and touches on a lot of areas that I'm personally quite interested in. Um, but I, I, I wonder if maybe we could talk about the areas you're working in sequentially, maybe starting with 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 street culture. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of what street culture is and how you became interested in it. Sure. Well, I'm going to start with a formal definition and then expand from that. Uh, basically, when we talk about street culture, we're talking about the beliefs, dispositions, ideologies, informal rules, practices, symbols, styles, and values associated with, adopted by, and engaged in by individuals and organizations that spend a disproportionate amount of time on the streets of large urban centers. No, that's a mouthful, but um, suffice it to say that there's a lot of misconception about what street culture is, um, and that's uh, part of what I try to uh, deconstruct or analyze or uh, react against. And uh, the the whole topic of street culture, uh, for me, uh, is a sort of a coming to terms with a, a lot of research, personal experiences, um, and teaching that I've done for several years. Um, and we can get into that if uh, that interests you. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background in the area and how you came to be interested in this subject, sort of kind of framing your work in relation to other people who are working in the same or similar area. Right. So, uh, in many respects, uh, all of my research is, uh, comes out of personal experience and, uh, uh, you know, we can wind back the clock to, uh, you know, when I was a teenager and, uh, when I was a young adult, um, and I've spent a considerable amount of time, uh, on the streets, I always found the streets, uh, more fascinating than a lot of, uh, typical, uh, I would say middle-class suburban interests like sports, like television, uh, like shopping. And uh, from an early age, I used to go downtown and uh, I used to uh, visit, uh, you know, restaurants and uh, bars and uh, uh, also uh, parks and uh, places where people hung out. I used to go to boxing clubs and gyms and uh, hang out and also participate uh, in those boxing clubs and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm a high school dropout. Um, and I managed to get, uh, uh, I was a, a taxi driver for a couple of years, a courier for a couple of years, and I managed to get into, uh, University of Toronto, uh, through a backdoor program. And, uh, through, through my experiences at University of Toronto, uh, I converted my, my interests into papers, into classes I took and, uh, ended up, uh, studying, uh, uh sociology uh, and political science and ended up uh, doing a PhD at University of uh, Colorado, looking at policing, looking at police violence uh, and uh, how uh, uh, police violence changed 
reformed, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, through my through my teaching and, and again through through my travels, um, I uh, uh, did work on street crime uh, along with policing. Uh, I looked uh, also at graffiti and street art. Came out with a, a major handbook on uh, graffiti and street art about four years ago, and I, I had this sense uh, that I was not really tapping into what uh, truly interested me. Uh, amongst my interests. And uh, through a lot of reading, a lot of reflection, a lot of conversations with colleagues, I realized that what interested me more than, say, street crime and policing, um, graffiti and street art was really uh, what happens on the streets, uh, the interactions amongst people, the styles that people uh, bring to their uh, the way they uh, carry themselves, the words they use, their knowledge of the streets. And, and that fits very conveniently uh, under this rubric called uh, street cult- culture. Now, if you were to type in street culture uh, on uh, you know, Google, uh, chances are it would bring you to uh, a variety of different fashions. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly fashion and, and music. Uh, is, are elements of street culture, but it's 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 more broad than that. Uh, so, uh, issues of homelessness, for example, uh, how people uh, uh, people's mobility through the streets, uh, whether that's on bicycles, whether that's on foot, whether that's on a razor, um, you know, or a skateboard, all that sort of thing is part of street culture. Sports that people play on the streets, uh, dance that people may engage in on the streets. Uh, that's uh, all, 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 all part of it, you know, uh, how people behave in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the relationship uh, with uh, vendors on the street. Uh, in many uh, places throughout the world, uh, a lot of people uh, buy their, um, you know, their food on the street through stalls. And uh, many, uh, there's a lot of street food that people uh you know, purchase uh, both as part of this, you know, kind of new kind of movement. Uh, and also traditionally and historically, uh, vendors would sell their, their food on the street. So that's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it covers, covers a lot uh, uh, of what goes on in the street. And certainly the internet, the rise of the World Wide Web has changed how people uh, relate to the street uh, certain kinds of activity, uh, economic and political activities like uh, protest, political participation, uh, now uh, doesn't just only happen in the street, but it also happens uh, over the uh, over the web, using the internet, using social media, all those sorts of things. Uh, so that's a that's a, that's a that's a mouthful. That's a handful there. Mm-hmm. Well, so Jeff, I wonder if you could characterize the disciplinary home or homes of the study of street culture, as well as sort of the methodologies people tend to use and maybe the kind of intellectual history of the study of street culture as well. Right. That's a good question. I mean, I would argue that its historical origins are are in the field of anthropology Um, uh, and uh, also in sociology it was would also be located in the field of geography too. So uh, in all those fields, we're, we're talking about um, 
you know, using the word urban in front of anthropology or urban in front of sociology uh, or urban in front of geography. And the, you know, principal, uh, you know, technique or methodology is ethnography. And ethnography depends upon uh, things like observation, uh, interaction, um, participant observation, um, and trying to really understand uh, unique environments, uh, understanding the uh, behaviors of people, uh, learning the words that they use, the nuances they engage in, um, issues of power and interaction, all of that is uh, part of it. Symbolic interactionism, too, is all part of that whole sort of complex um, street culture um, element. Um, there are more, uh, you know, quantitative, uh, let's just say there are quantitative kinds of ways we can study the street. Those are the kinds of techniques that urban planners are, are use, looking at traffic flow, pedestrian flow, um, th that sort of thing, and looking at it over a period of time during different days of the week, uh, during different months, dur different during seasons, that sort of thing. But uh, primarily the study of street culture is, uh, uh, is through ethnography, observation, uh, that sort of thing. What is it that the study of street culture brings to our understanding of urban life, urban interactions, and urban geography that isn't already present in the disciplines that you mentioned? Again, another good question. Well, I think it's a, it's a more of a uh, narrowing down uh, a drilling down of what's going on in the street. Um, I think uh, when people um, walk in an area, live in an area, uh, that uh, area provides a certain uniqueness, and that uniqueness um, is resonates with people. People are very; they feel comfortable or not comfortable with the. Um, with the information that they process either consciously or unconsciously in, 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 in those areas. Now we may be talking about a street call, uh, corner. Uh, we may be talking about a street. We may be talking about a neighborhood. And I think one of the clearest examples uh, for me very early on was uh, New York city. And, and uh, I recall in New York city, you know, many years ago um, I stayed at the Y and uh uh, that was a uh, very cheap place where you could stay overnight and for a longer period of time. And they attracted all different types of people. And um, I uh, uh, like to run. Uh, I like to run at different times of the day, uh, most, of the, most of the time at night. But uh, I could run uh, very safely and comfortably uh, in the in the you know the a radius of of the Y, but if I got any further than a couple blocks over, uh, the neighborhood really changed. Uh, there was a lot more um, you know garbage and refuse on the street. There were more people hanging out on uh, street corners on uh, the steps of uh, buildings. Uh, there was more eyeballing of me uh, when I ran past because I assumed that I looked like a fish out of water in that uh, neighborhood. Whereas in those uh, two blocks closer to the Y, um, you know, this uh, uh, person running didn't seem to be as uh, 
as as peculiar uh, as what was going on a couple of blocks later. And so, and I've experienced that quite a bit in in other cities where um, you know I've either walked or or I've run or I bicycled uh, the kind of uh, attention that I've gotten. Uh, and w- when I do these sorts of things, I, I when I do walking uh, and I do travel, I, I try not to confine myself simply to the to the front stage, as Irvin Goffman would say. Um, but I also go to the backstage. And so I try as much as possible to um, explore uh, back alleys, explore um, the spaces behind buildings, uh, you know, parks, parkettes, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, not necessarily like, uh, you know, the, the notion of the flaneur and not in a necessarily voyeuristic way, but, you know, I'm, I'm exploring and I'm, I'm, I'm processing the information and I'm sort of comparing it to, uh, perceptions I have of other parts of the city. Reading the material you sent me, I got the impression that the study of street culture is frequently the study of a kind of oral culture, and maybe also a kind of outsider culture as well, in Becker's sense. Is, is that right? Um, I think that can be part of it, um, particularly if we're talking about um, you know, an ethnographer who is trying to understand um, a situation uh, or a group of individuals, a culture or a subculture that they're not necessarily part of. But it can also be an, uh, you know, an autoethnography where somebody has been or is currently part of a subculture and they're trying to explain uh, the inner workings of that subculture to to an outsider. So somebody who participates in, for example, parkour, um, that you know, a, a, you know, energetic exercise uh, that people do in uh, in city streets uh, and in parks, that sort of thing. Or somebody who is a you know former current graffiti writer uh, explaining. Uh, the inner nuances of how uh, this uh, subculture or the subculture that he or she was part of or experienced, uh, you know, some of the norms that they uh, um, they are uh, uh, were part of or exposed to that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that's an element, no question about. It. There was another ele- uh, question asked there that uh, I, I think the pre pre, pre uh, was before the one you just asked. Well, so I know you have. A collection of articles by a range of different scholars that's that's uh, coming out soon or already available. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about one or two of the articles that you think are uh, especially representative and effective from that collection. Besides my own, um, <laughs> the uh, well, there's a, an interesting article. Uh, well, it, it, I, I like to call it a chapter. It's better seen as a chapter, and it's uh, written by uh, Daniel Briggs, and it's about the Roma street culture that he was very familiar with that he did an ethnography on in on the outskirts of Madrid. And uh, he spent at least a year, if not a couple uh, of years, uh, understanding uh, how they operate, uh, particularly how they support themselves, breaking down myths that are held by um, the public uh, and by researchers um, and uh, trying to understand how they navigate uh, a a very complex world that is, uh, uh, you know, discriminates against uh, the the Roma in Madrid and elsewhere, uh, how they make a living, 
uh, both legally and illegally. Um, so uh, basically what he does, and, and many of the other contributors, is that uh, they demonstrate to the, uh, to the public and to uh, other people who have what, what we, I might consider, we might consider to be a superficial understanding of what's going on, uh, a more complex um, subculture. Uh, a subculture that spends a considerable amount of time on the street trying to survive or trying to negotiate um, their, uh, their lives with other actors on the street, uh, whether they may be drug dealers, whether they may be homeless people, whether they might be police officers, whether they might be uh, social workers. Um, those are all part, you know, people who work for the government who are trying to check up on their papers, all that sort of thing. So that's, that would be a, a good, uh, good study, uh, that, uh, combines elements of ethnography and looking at what happens on the street. Uh, most of the, there's a bias, uh, in, amongst these chapters to looking at, uh, uh, situations in advanced industrialized democracies, in particular in the United States, uh, if not the United States, Great Britain, or in Europe. Um, and so uh, in some respects, uh, you know, uh, although this is the very first handbook on street culture, uh, it's kind of scratched the surface because we have just a, a multiplicity of street cultures uh, throughout the world uh, in, uh, you know, uh, continents such as Africa, Latin America, uh, and in Asia uh, that really need to be explored that I think, uh, would be of interest and, and fascinating to, to a, a Western audience. So, but these take, this, this takes people who have an expertise who are subtle, uh, uh who are uh, attuned to the subtleties of those, those particular situations. Well, Jeff, changing gears, I know that you also do a lot of work in convict criminology and have publications in that area as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what exactly that is and who participates in the study of convict criminology. My pleasure. So convict criminology uh, has been called a, a number of things or labeled a number of things, uh, a group, an organization, a theory, a movement. I, I like the term uh, network. Uh, and so what happened was uh, in the early 1990s, uh, myself uh, and another uh, professor um, met uh, and we started talking about our mutual interests. Uh, I worked almost four years in a correctional facility. He was uh, incarcerated uh, for uh, some time uh, in the federal system, uh, and we were at that point in time both uh, assistant professors, and we had some very uh, interesting and unique perspectives on the uh, correctional system uh, in the United States uh, and uh, we had really believed, or uh, we still do, uh, that uh, the convict voice was uh, typically ignored in uh, scholarly research and in public policy debate. And so we uh, sought out uh, people who were, had, um, you know, a similar belief, uh, people who had PhDs or, or were on their way to uh, earning a PhD. Uh, in criminology or an allied field, and uh, who had uh, uh, disproportionately uh, been incarcerated. And so uh, we 
decided that we would craft, uh, we would hold a panel uh, and a series of panels at the annual American Society of Criminology conferences. And, and through those meetings and through those discussions, we came up with the idea of uh, establishing uh, convict criminology. And convict criminology has three major uh, objectives. And one is, as I mentioned before, trying to you know, push back and push against this uh, disproportionate um, uh, research that's conducted in the field of criminology and corrections and criminal justice that ignores the convict voice. Uh, too much of the research is done from the safety of a lot of people's uh, offices. Uh, they don't uh, roll up their sleeves and, and uh, uh, get inside the prisons and interact with the prisoners and uh, talk to them uh, and understand uh, their concerns. Uh, they may get so far as to do a survey of prisoners or correctional officers or correctional workers, but it's really divorced. Now we can point to a number of exceptions. A lot of great ethnographies have come out of prison, um, but they're few and far between. And when we uh, traditionally uh, correctional um, systems, whether it's in a state from the Department of Corrections or the FBOP, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, when they go and uh, do some sort of a policy recommendation, often it's divorced from the people who they, they're supposed to serve. Uh, or let's just say the people who are incarcerated. So that's where convict criminology comes in. So there's the research aspect. There's also the mentoring aspect. Uh, we uh, made sure that we would uh, be sort of a, uh, a you know mutual aid uh, organization, helping each other to navigate the rough waters of academia, uh, to complete a PhD, to uh, secure a uh, stable academic job to publish, uh, to progress through the ranks, that sort of thing, and to mentor people who are behind bars who are considering doing an advanced degree and help them when they came out get into a respectable, uh, you know, uh, postgraduate program. And then we've also been involved in, uh, you know, prison activism, public policy kind of work, um, newsmaking criminology, which is talking uh, with the, the news media. So those are the three main pillars. And we've managed uh, since the mid-1990s uh, to uh, contribute in all those, uh, in all those three areas. And, and so much so that uh, this year, earlier this year, the American Society of Criminology proposed, not proposed, but they approved uh, the creation of an official division of the American Society of Criminology. American Society of Criminology has about 15 divisions, and so we're one of those uh, divisions, a uh, newly created division, uh, where we have a constitution and we have a chair and, you know, the typical kinds of bells and whistles that uh, these kinds of divisions have. And we have a journal uh, that we can point to. It's not part of the division, but the Journal of uh uh, for Prisoners on Prisons, which is run out of the uh, uh, University of Ottawa up in uh, Canada, has been around since uh, at least the uh, 1990s. Uh, they uh, specialize in uh, publishing uh, uh, articles, peer-reviewed articles, uh, written or co-authored with people who have uh, some uh, uh, experience behind bars. So, uh, a couple other things. Not everybody who's part of convict criminology uh, has been incarcerated. Uh, many of our members are what we call justice impacted. Uh, they had uh, a, 
uh, a person in their family or a loved one who was incarcerated. Um, uh, they may have had a brush with the law, but they weren't incarcerated, that sort of thing. But they're pretty much uh, united in, in the, the general um, kind of uh, thing uh, I, I mentioned. And, and we can point to people in the field of criminology and criminal justice who have been incarcerated, who uh, contributed to the field of criminology, criminal justice, the scholarly field uh, of sociology to Frank Tannenbaum, for example, labor activist, uh, Columbia uh, professor, uh, would be considered to be a convict criminologist. Uh, Gwyn uh, Nettler, um, who was a sociologist, criminologist up at the University of Alberta, for example, uh, and also John Irwin, uh, who was uh, part of our network uh, in its early uh, stages uh, until he passed away. And uh, so these people are inspiration for uh, members of, of the group. And so um, members of the group uh, have published scholarly articles and they've also uh, published some books. And just recently, uh, Francesca Vianello at University of Padua and I uh, got a book published, an edited book uh, called Convict Criminology for the Future, uh, published with Rutledge. And it's based on a conference that we held there uh, a year ago. And so, uh, you know, there's momentum. Uh, there is recognition in the field of criminology and criminal justice that um, that prisoners, uh, ex-prisoners, need to be part of the conversation. Uh, that's why we have uh, uh, the Inside Out program operating, where um, professors will go to a um, uh, correctional facility and bring students there and teach a college class alongside uh, prisoners who will uh, you know, earn college credits. And uh, they're hoping to establish a pipeline from uh, 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 individuals who are released, who then almost seamlessly uh, start their or well, continue their undergraduate uh, studies at universities. University of Baltimore, for example, where I teach, has a uh, inside-out uh, program, as do many universities in the United States. And if they don't have an inside-out program, uh, they have hybrid kinds of programs. Um, you know, Bard College, for example, uh, they have a very strong uh, program where they teach in uh, prisons. So that's. Uh, that's all part of the whole dynamic there. I wonder if you could briefly talk a little more specifically about how you think that incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people bring different perspectives to the field of criminology, sort of in what particular areas and how is that perspective helpful in better understanding the problems that criminologists study? The, uh, to begin with, uh, it's important. Well, first of all, criminology, the field of criminology is an interdisciplinary field. Um, and up until, you know, I would say, you know, relatively recently, there were a few PhD programs in criminology and uh, criminal justice. Uh, so it drew on the fields of political science, sociology, anthropology, history, law, those typical fields. Um, and uh, people who taught in those fields were, um, you know, from those disciplines, 
Um, and uh, often they may have practitioner experience. So they were former police officers or police administrators. They may have been lawyers uh, or judges. Um, and, you know, they may have been, you know, public defenders or, you know, prosecutors. Rarely were they people who had uh, firsthand experience with the criminal justice system as a perpetrator of crime. And so that piece of the puzzle uh, has been lacking. Uh, and what that does is it infuses a dose of realism and reality. Now, uh, there is often a tendency uh, among practitioners to uh, put forward a series of you know war stories. And, and that, that can be interesting and entertaining to students uh, at some levels, but uh, over time, um, it's 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 not that useful. So they can bring, uh, you know, ex-con can bring a dose of, of reality to 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 what's going on. And and here's another thing too is I mean, many of the uh, undergraduates and graduates who are studying at our universities, their knowledge of crime and criminality uh, is uh, heavily mediated by the uh, mass media. And the mass media is uh, often um, uh, has all these tropes about what uh, what is crime, who are the typical criminals, what's the typical type of crime, and and I think uh, having somebody who is a uh, ex-con uh, as a student and hopefully uh, later uh, as an instructor uh, can uh, help put uh, what we've learned. Uh, both from a scholarly basis and also from the, the mass media into perspective um, and, and challenge uh, our understandings of, 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 of crime, criminality, the criminal justice system, justice, fairness, um, those kinds of things. And I think that's important because we, uh, if you're not challenged and if you don't, if you're not forced to defend uh, your position, then you become uh, stagnant. Uh, you accept uh, lots of information that's presented to you uh, without uh, questioning it. And I think that um, that is, is, is not a good position. And, and so that's what somebody with a criminal background can, can, can force scholars and, and students and, and even administrators. So anecdotally, I've noticed that it seems like there's an increasing number of formerly incarcerated or criminal justice involved people going into law school uh, as well, and even becoming uh, law instructors or, or law professors. I wonder if you see that as related to the work you're doing in uh, kind of doctoral programs around uh around around these uh, the convict criminology uh yes i see that and damn them i want them to do phds in criminology or criminal justice so they can populate my field uh but uh, no i see that happening i think that's a great thing um and um i mean great thing in the sense that i think uh they're i mean uh, you're closer to this than i am but uh, i'm assuming they bring that dose of reality to um the, the practice of law uh, and also the pedagogy uh, of law. Um, and, you know, I've, I've met a handful and interacted with a handful of, the, of, of these uh, individuals and uh, uh, they, uh, 
they, they, they can actually be uh, lawyers who at some point in time uh, were convicted of a crime uh, or uh, they spent uh, numerous uh, years behind bars. And when they graduated, uh, they went uh, formally to a, uh, to a to a law school. But uh, again, uh, they see the, the, the study of law, the practice of law from a, a different perspective, one that I think uh, can, can, can contribute to, you know, our, our understanding of, of law, uh, judicial processing, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, some of the best people uh, uh, I know who can uh, explain to me uh, sentencing uh, guidelines are people who are incarcerated. I mean, uh, they because uh, they've uh, they've lived it, they've breathed it. Uh, they understand uh, a lot of the kind of legal maneuvers. Now, that's not everybody. I mean, who's been incarcerated, uh, and and you know, here's another thing too that you know I, I neglected to mention, and that is, you know, a lot of people uh, who have been uh, who are incarcerated and or formerly incarcerated, uh, they may be very articulate. Uh, not maybe there there are there's a lot of articulate, very smart people who are doing time and who've been released. But um, we wanted people who uh, uh, had a PhD uh, because there's a kind of training that people have uh, if they've uh, uh, gone through uh, the PhD training from a a respected school. And so we can talk about things like uh, different types of research methods. Uh, We'll have, we will have been forced to uh, learn uh, you know, uh, respected theorists in, in our, in our field and will be exposed, uh, in a rigorous mat- fashion to, uh, research that's, uh, you know, preceded us. So, um, so that's, that's also part of the equation. Well, so in closing, I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between your work in, uh, in street culture and your work in convict criminology. Do you think that they inform each other? That's a great question. Again, you know, uh, they can. Um, and at some point in time, uh, I might try to really make the uh, connection. But I think the, 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 the biggest connection between the two was made by John Irwin. And John Irwin, uh, who um, was a former bank robber and then uh, uh, got his PhD uh, out of Berkeley, uh, he came up with this idea of the importation-exportation hypothesis. Uh, so if you're an economist, you're thinking about, oh, yeah, what that has to do, what does that, you know, that has to do with trade. But no, um, what he said was that the ideas, beliefs, values, maybe even the way people carried themselves in terms of fashions, uh, that uh, aspect um, of the street makes its way into correctional facilities, the jails, the prisons, and it undergoes or can undergo a transformation behind bars. Okay. So the way people, you know, carry themselves, the words they use, uh, you know, the way they wear their, their clothes, cut their hair, the kind of tattoos they get behind bars, if they get tattoos at all. And then they go back into the community, into the streets, and they bring that with them uh, into the streets. And so there is a kind of a transmission belt uh, that happens and can happen. Now, that doesn't happen in uh, every correctional facility. 
but it can happen uh, depending upon, you know, different dynamics. If you have a, a large state, uh, differences between the federal system and the uh, and the uh, state system, differences between jails and prisons, the differences of amongst the types of crimes people can, you know, engage in, uh, uh, perpetrate, that sort of thing. But I, I believe that's where the connection can be made. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really great to hear about your work, and uh, I look forward to reading more of it in the future. It was great talking with you, Brian, and uh, I hope we have a chance again to, to talk. can rest everybody but cruel staggerly that bad man oh cruel staggerly there's a line told staggerly please don't take my life i got two little babies and a darling loving wife that bad man, oh cruel Stanley. What I care about you, little baby, darling, loving wife. You done stole my stuff and hat. I'm bound to take your life. That bad man, oh cruel Stanley. Bad man, oh, cruel Stanley. 